0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night wherever around the world, and welcome to another episode from The grandstand. Today, we are looking at the last two rounds of supercars actions that we've had over the course of two months, all the way down in Tasmania and all the way up at the top end in Darwin. On top of that as well, we are in our big month of sports in July. We're going to be talking about white clothes. We're going to be talking about white clothes and shorts. We're going to be talking about colored clothes. We're going to be talking about colored clothes with shorts and other things as well as we try to preview... And white jersey winners. And white jersey winners. White jersey winners. Jerseys as well. There's so much to talk about this month because July, it's like a sports explosion has happened over in Europe and it's going to mean many late nights for us. But many fun times to be had. So, thank you for joining us from the grandstands. As always, I have with me Kiwi Chris. Chris, welcome back. Hey, thank you, artist formerly known as Floody. How's it going, mate? Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, How long have you been sitting on that one? Uh, So, about a month. Oh uh, yeah, fair enough. Um yes, thank you for coming back to us as we talk and uh, we ramble on about sports. Um we took a month off for June because of course, you know, just some motor race happened. I don't know if you heard about it. Uh twenty four hours a little more. Yes, we will be doing a wrap up of that, but you know, as always we need to take a little bit of time to like Detox after that event because it's it's so much. Um, so we will be doing that hopefully before Monza. If uh, you're listening to this, which is very very soon. Uh, just quickly, look, look, two seconds. Oh, very good. Let not good. Your thoughts? Really intriguing. Really not intriguing. I was a fan. Me too. I thought it was a race befitting the centenary, which is you know what you want. Um, let's leave Le Mans because that's in France and. That's far away. Let's talk about supercars because there's been quite a bit that's gone on that we've missed and we're going to breeze through it because we don't really want to talk about supercars. We want to talk about everything else. Uh, Tasmania. What on earth happened in Tasmania? They went full loco. They went full loco. I, I mean, Tasmania is a bullring and Simmons Plains is a bullring for a reason, but it's not very often you see Van Gisbergen getting taken out in a turn one, uh, lap one incident. Yeah, that was...
1: That was just reflective of his week here, and he had an absolute shocker down there, and that's the reason why he's languishing in the point somewhat now.
0: Yeah, and that's a really sort of interesting. We haven't seen Van Gisbergen in this position for a very long time. Uh, it's been, what, 2016? And he, like, he was in fourth in the championship in 2016 at this point and came through to win it. So it's not unheard of, but it was very surprising. It has been very surprising to me how difficult he's been finding qualifying and then how difficult that has made his races and then how difficult that has then made his championship. I do wonder if the
1: changes they've made to the car, taking out a lot of the driver adjustability, has actually worked against him, because we know he's a sort of driver who'd love to play with his levers seven times
0: a lap, and he can't do that anymore. That's true. Um, but we also know that Van Gisbergen can drive around conditions quite well. We'll talk a bit more about that in a sec. Um, let's leave him alone for a second. Let's talk briefly about his teammate. We said at the very beginning of the season after Newcastle, after they uh, Red Bull lost their 1-2 because of the whatever, 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 um, that it was something that Van Gisberg could probably overcome, but probably not Brock Feeney. Now, Feeney is second in the championship behind uh, Brody Kosteki Two wins, uh, well, a win in Tasmania, another win at Darwin. Is Feeney the real deal?
1: It's then to prove me wrong. That's for sure. Uh, was it, what, four months ago before the Bethesda 12-hour podcast where I said he hasn't yet proved himself? It would be something along those lines. And, mate, he's since then. Yeah, I've got a big serve of humble pie coming my way very shortly. Ooh, that sounds tasty.
0: Do you mind if you can get me some as well? <laughs> you, want, you want the whipped cream on top? Oh, mate. You know me. Whipped cream. Love it. Um, <laughs> seriously, though. Uh, Feeney has been probably the biggest surprise of the season thus far if you ignore Erebus. Uh, and the, the follow-up I question say, I had today.
1: I was going to say, if you ignore Erebus, that's a pretty big
0: thing you've got to ignore. That's true. I was going to say, Erebus have been quite a surprise. You know, we've seen glimpses of performance from Brody and Will Brown in the past, but we haven't seen this level of sustained performance. And this is the surprising thing to me. It has been sustained. Brody Kistecki and Will Brown, every single race this season, one of them has been on the podium, except for when we got to Darwin. And we'll talk a bit more about that a little later on, but you know that that level of sustained uh, pressure wins championships. Wasn't it? Wasn't it only a few years ago
1: where? What was it twenty? Ever remind me what year it was? Where someone won the championship despite winning only three races in the season? Oh, all just because they keep podiums.
0: I uh, ooh. um, I know it was a long time ago in uh, like the two thousand six, two thousand seven. Uh, accumulated oh. points era Where like Rick Kelly won the championship With one race win versus Lowndes' seven And Russell Lingle won the championship With two round wins Versus Lowndes' six or something So like it's not too far But that was a long time ago Different points uh, setting there um, Maybe Jamie Winkup
1: in 2017 It, it, sounds, it sounds, sounds familiar Yeah but it's how you win the championship if It's just finishing races Even if you have a bad weekend Finishing top five
0: yeah, or just finishing just it all. Just get to the finish and spank some points. Exactly, and that's what, they, that's what Erebus were able to do for a lot of the season up until Darwin. Darwin, they had the opposite of that. Darwin, they had a friggin' shocker, um, which was a bit of a, a surprise to many, I think we can say. Um, uh, anything else from Tasmania that you wanted to talk about briefly? Uh, because we're, we're kind of powering through this because we want to talk about everything else. I feel like the main discussion points from Tassie will probably come up in
1: Darwin anyway, so let's move on.
0: Yeah, um, just quickly, uh, we probably would have talked more about Tasmania had we done a June edition of the podcast, but we didn't, so too bad. Uh, so, uh, Darwin, uh, first things first, Darwin did a great job with the event. I have not seen uh, Hidden Valley look so good or be as packed as it was uh, on the weekend. Uh, and uh, I would say the drag racing as well was super duper cool, um, but the... Uh, floundering around of trying to find things to talk about when they were doing recovery was less fun but that's just me that's that, that, that nitpicking really the whole
1: weekend even the indigenous liveries they've upped their game this year even the teams from last year who didn't really try they've stepped up they stepped up this year and all 26 cars were absolutely perfect
0: I think there was still one or two duds. I I wasn't too impressed with uh, Tickford's uh, specifically the Cam Waters offering again, um, or the tradie car. They were kind of eh. eh they were afterthoughts. I, I I think in my personal private, they were less afterthoughty than last year. That's true. That's very true. Um, I do I do agree? The indigenous uh, liveries were really really quite uh, quite cool. I did quite like the fact that uh, Shell V Power actually did something properly for once, uh, as opposed to. Half asking it to appease their corporate sponsors. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, you yes, Shell Tickford, love it. Um, now a few things that we saw at Darwin, which were you know hot, hot, hot. Um, the first one was Cameron Waters' pace. Um, the second one was Cameron Waters literally on fire. Uh, what does a Ford driver need to do to win a goddamn race? Like it's it's hilarious to me the seemingly high level of incompetence that has been happening to four teams when they've been in good positions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Especially this one, because even though they were trying to, you know, Tim Edwards was trying to put the blame on, oh, it's a crappy engine design. It's your fault. You should have made sure the connection was tight enough to make sure there wasn't this big fireball.
0: And even if it's not that hard. Yeah. And even if it is like the equivalent of the, the, you know, Pardon me, twenty cent part on the million dollar machine. Um, You're still going to ch- make that. Make sure that twenty cent part is doing its job. So um, you know, just tell Toyota that in 2016. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, quite scary. Glad that water's got out. Glad that the fire got put out quickly. Less glad about the marshal who handed over a fire extinguisher and then whipped his phone out. Not, not exactly yeah. a fan of that.
1: Uh, well, I'm not exactly a fan of that at all. That's
0: that's immediately blacklisting, shouldn't it be? <laughs> I think so, yes. Uh, there is a pretty strict Motorsport Australia social media policy and they really don't like you uh, on camera using your phone to take pictures. Uh, they don't like you being on camera using your phone at all. Um, so I would... I wouldn't look like losing your phone track at a hot track or even a lukewarm
1: track is a and good yeah, idea, period. Es-
0: especially over the wall. Like, I'll I'll admit, I have taken video footage while while on post but not on duty if that makes sense so not while act- having to sit down yeah not actively not actively on flags during a race session but i have during an exhibition session or while i've been off duty taken some cameras or taken some photos or i've lent my phone up against the post to record the first 15 seconds of the cars all going through like i will admit that plenty of marshals do it and that's part of the privilege of being the marshal. Like you don't go sharing that because that's not like don't don't do that. But also don't jump onto a hot track, hand over an extinguisher, and then whip your phone out. Like, my gosh. That's not good optics. Look, they're different than right <laughs> <up in> Darwin. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. Um following on from that though, we'll talk more about Ford stuff a bit later. What it did lead to, though, was the first win for Team 18, Charlie Swercott's Team 18, and a huge gap in wins between uh, Mark Winterbottom's last win and this one. But still, what a great story to have Mark Winterbottom take another victory and do it for Team 18. Like, that's wonderful. And finally.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) Finally for Charlie and his boys, who are one of the hardest-working
0: small teams you're going to get in the paddock. Hard working because it seems like half their cars are crashed every second event. <laughs> oh, sorry, Charlie. Yeah. Um but uh, and honestly no, though, they've always he's one of the good guys. Absolutely, a hundred percent. To to buy into a team and to build it up over the course of the years that he has done to finally get rewarded with a good result where he's been strong at Darwin. Like Charlie Swirkot cars, team eighteen cars have been strong at Darwin for quite a number of years in a row. So to see them take a victory was really, really, really cool. Um, some will say that they only got the victory because Waters' car was on fire. What do you say to that?
1: Well, you've got to be in it to win it. He was still
0: going to finish second, no matter what. <laughs> Which would have been the first podium for the team as well. Uh, would yeah, it have be? Either, yeah, either way. So, very, very cool. Awesome to see uh Team 18 on top of the podium. Now we get to Sunday, and... We once again see Brock Feeney taking the the ascendancy in that one. Really, really cool race. Um, Erebus have a mare first one of the season. Not uh, any concern with Erebus over their their nightmare on Sunday. It happens.
1: <laughs> you're not you're not
0: triple late. You're going to have a nightmare around every now and then. And so. how you respond? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's about limiting limiting the damage as well. And like the fact that Brody managed to get to the finish is probably a good sign. Uh, you know, even though they didn't get the points results that they wanted from that, they still got points. But the follow-on cool. is that we had another first-time winner on the Sunday, the second race on Sunday, Jack LeBrock, uh, winning and for Matt Stone that. Racing.
1: Absolutely did not see that coming. Really? I mean, if Whoa. you have
0: asked me who I thought would win a race this year, it so wouldn't have been on my list. So, yeah, just which part of it do you find surprising? The Jack LeBrock winning or the Matt Stone Racing winning? Both, I guess. Both? Oh, Matt
1: Stone, less so, because they've been improving quite a bit this year. But I just did not think it was quite their time yet. I was wrong, again.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, and very happy to be wrong. Uh, you know, LeBrock has shown some good qualifying performances. It was the first pole for the team as well, so that's how they got the 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 track position. Um, but, you know, LeBrock has been on qualifying the front row of the grid before. He did it in... I want to say Tasmania, and I think it was last year when he got crashed out in the, the race on in the morning of that day, and they basically had to rebuild the entire car just to start the race, and they started on second of the grid and fell down the order because the car was still bent. Um, but, you know, he has got qualifying chops, and sure, he, you know, has taken a race win in the tyre uh, limited formula of the Sydney suplex earlier in, I think, in the COVID years, but, you know, he still has has shown talent, Jack LeBrock, and it's good that it's finally come to fruition. And, like, I have a soft spot for Matt Spidone, Stone Racing. I was a Stone Brothers fan going up, so for, to me, this was very special.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I'm the same, you know, being ki- being Kiwis. That's true.
0: God, why do I always you end know, up supporting been... Kiwis? I hate that. And <laughs> that, <laughs> <laughs> no. good on them.
1: I guess he was more likely to win of the two
0: drivers they've got. That's true. Um, but, I mean, your other driver right. is a debutant, so... This is very true. Um,
1: There's that's no story
0: from him. No, that's not. Uh, so, Hot Times in Darwin. What did we think of the Darwin event?
1: I think it was not too bad at all, actually. It was just the afters that really sold it for me, but the event itself was great.
0: So, let's talk about the afters. What are you talking about when you talk about the afters? The afters of four teams going... Parody, parody, parody,
1: screaming that this is completely wrong. We need to fix this. Stating that they've actually, you know, coming out in the media and making it incredibly public that there's something here that needs to be addressed. We've triggered a re- automatic review now ahead of supercars who have also handled it pretty poorly, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it's just been a mess and it didn't need to play out like this. <laughs> All that had to happen was on Monday, Super, Supercars came up with a statement saying, we're aware of these potential issues. We're currently looking to it. This has been triggered. This is what we're doing. And that yep. would have ended 95% of the discussion.
0: Uh, yeah, but it's it's not the first, or I mean, it's not the first time this season. This entire season has been plagued by the four teams crying parody. Um, and, you know, while they're... I don't want to mince these words here. While there is a not insignificant performance difference between the two cars, that much has been made clear because they've pointed to race stints, Ford four teams losing rear tires. They pointed to qualifying, how a lot of the Camaros are in the top ten. They pointed to race results, wherein a lot of the Camaros have been in the top ten, and also non-traditional teams who are driving Camaros are winning. Except, uh, well, you know, while four non-traditional four teams. Or even the good four teams have just been absolutely nowhere. Um so you can say, I, I think after five rounds we can kind of say, okay, there might be a difference. But still, the difference between the two platforms has been so fine that they are talking about like minuscule adjustments between the two platforms in order to make these changes. And I know that and I know that this sport is a sport defined by those minuscule adjustments, but like I find it I find it difficult to placate. The placate is that the right word? I find it difficult to agree with the amount of stress and angst and anger that has been happening over this parody debate. When it has been something wherein half the time Ford is just shooting itself in the foot as well. It's it's just been it's just been a saying, mess. There's two things there. One, yeah, Ford drivers stop crashing to each other. You're not helping your own cause. Oh Ten my god, right? Proving that. You can- like, 100%. Like, let's go back to Tasmania quickly. Why on earth did the two Shell V-Power cars crash into Waters while he was on a hot lap and qualifying? Like, are, are, are you dumb? Like, I, I, how? Like, what on earth is going on in those organisations where they can't organise their qualifying runs to not trip over each other when they're all trying to fight t- this argument that their cars are not a- a- an adequate platform? We well, no one can bloody tell because you're crashing into each other on the goddamn... <sighs> yeah. How does it go for Ludo to go,
1: Anton? Hot lap behind you Get
0: out of the way Okay Calm down It's okay okay. It's okay Um, So that's the first part It um, just seems that Every time a Ford driver Gets into a good position Something stupid happens Like you know Fireball mm -hmm. Sorry And then the second part is
1: Cam Waters is showing The Ford is actually Not too bad It helps that You know I I had this thought That Maybe just the Holden drivers Just better better collectively At the moment
0: Holden What's that Chevrolet (laughs) Um (laughs) Uh, yeah, it could be like that way. Um it, it's interesting to me that like besides Erebus and Triple Eight, there hasn't been a lot of consistency with who's been up the front, and it doesn't matter whether it's been Ford or Holden. Up uh, look at what you've made me do. Ford or <laughs> Chevrolet in that discussion. Like, you know, we've seen Andre Heimgardner take a bunch of podiums, team 18 is taking a win, MSR is taking a win, you know, Erebus have been consistent, Triple Eight been consistent, but like also uh, the, the new long cars team, formerly team Sydney, team premier. I, uh, they've been in the top 10, uh, Tim Slade and James Golding have been in the top 10 in more than one occasion. It's like, you know, there's, it's no surprise to me that everyone's still trying to find a handle on this platform, which has been jumbling up the results, which is a good thing. It's just a surprise to me that when it, like none of the four teams can string together a race, like Cameron Waters has been great in qualifying, but he hasn't been able to string together a race. And I'm not. And again, I'm not sure if it's a uh, a car thing or a personnel thing. But then, like on the other hand, the the bleating four teams can't even string together a qualifying lap. Like, da da. I don't know. It's like I I find it very difficult to leave to believe that it's all the car.
1: Yeah, I I'm the same. Um. We'll see what happens at Townsville this weekend. Uh, late-breaking news has just come out, so we do we want to address that? Sure, let's address this late-breaking news. But yeah, there's actually been an adjustment made to the Fords affected from this weekend. Um, as you mentioned, they were all talking about rear-tire life. Um, essentially, there's just going to be a minor difference in rear downforce. Yeah. And it's basically going to break a little bit better. So they're just basically adjusting the rear wing slightly and increasing the boot spoiler.
0: Yeah. So to for for the particulars of the uh, of the press release, um, the recommended changes involve modifying the position, span, and angle of the rear wing and increasing the side of the boot spoiler on the Ford Mustang. So I mean, that could be a significant change, or that could be a not all that significant change. But I would be—it would be hilarious to me. And I'm, you know, I grew up watching Fords, Marcus Ambrose, and Triple Eight back in the day. Stone Brothers Racing and Triple Eight—they were my two teams. I wanted Fords to win. It would be hilarious to me is that they got these changes and their cars were even shitter. Like that would just tickle me in <laughs> s- such a way. Because like it's just ah, ah. anyway. Like, okay, I want to pivot from this discussion. You and I watch a lot of sports cars. Our audience watches a lot of sports cars. We've had discussions about balanced performance across the entirety of our run as a podcast. At the end of the day, it is up up to the teams and the manufacturers to build a car that is good enough to be balanced in the series. Uh, Parody in this context doesn't apply to making the cars good. It applies to making the cars even. If uh, this is the thing that really sort of struck me, it's not a, a not a, it's not a balance of performance system wherein they have to you know modify all these different things to get them on the right track. The it was the responsibility of the homologation teams to put forward a product that was appropriate, and you know if like it's hard to say without Supercards handing over all their data and going through it with a fine tooth comb, or whatever. But like if there wasn't any. Change like if there wasn't any issues in what the aero was signed off between the two homologation teams and what the engine parody was signed off between the two homologation teams. If it's just a setup issue, then that's not parody, is it?
1: No, that's just kind of BOP teams, and that's not what this is about.
0: Yeah, so supercars is a a technical parody, the technical parody sort of what? Yeah, if I can draw a crappy analogy, it'd be like trying to. B.O.P. Lawrence Vantour to Sully Sally New york. I mean, hey, you look pretty damn fast for a bronze driver. You'd probably be better <laughs> off saying, like, trying to B.O.P. Lawrence Vantor to Ben Keating. <laughs> That'd be a fairer comparison. Ooh. That'd be fair. I don't see that, actually. Um, but yeah, so, like, uh, it's just... This is... This discussion's gone on far too long.
1: <laughs> yes. Hopefully, Townsville puts an end to it.
0: So let's talk Townsville. Uh, it, yeah, I mean, it, it won't. Um... Let's talk Townsville. Uh, we return to the street hybrid track. This is something we haven't actually seen since... New- well, I mean, Newcastle's just now at Street Circuit. This is a proper, like, street hybrid track now. This is something with more, much more of a built-in uh, circuit overlaid with the streets of Townsville. Um, we haven't seen one of these so far yet this season. I mean, I guess you could, again, say Albert Park, but no, no one actually thinks Albert and Park's a street just- circuit.
1: Now, Park is a street circuit with streets that are conveniently laid out.
0: Exactly. Um, It's like the streets were designed to have an F1 race on them, let's be real. Um, Basically. Now, what do we think the form guide is heading into Townsville? So we've seen Kamara be strong, we've seen MSR, a team 18 tackle win, we've seen Brock Feeney be up there, Erebus have just had a nightmare, the four teams are getting an adjustment, Andre Heimgarten has been in the mix, how does this shake out for, for Townsville? Well, traditionally, 888's been
1: pretty good up at Townsville. I do think it's going to be an Erebus 888, depending on these adjustments, how well they, how well the four teams fare. And also how jet-lagged Gizzy is.
0: <laughs> so do we want to talk a bit, a bit more about Van Gisbergen then? Because uh, he's just kind of one, one
1: another discipline.
0: I know, right? How dumb is that? I do want to quickly say, he's been the most... like. Of the recent races at Townsville, he's been the one that's been, you know, the king of Townsville, as dreadful as that is. Sorry, Shane. Um, (laughs) Sorry to indict that on you. Is anyone going to be the king of Townsville? (laughs) But, like, he's been the one that's really made Townsville a place to get 300 points every single time. He's been a little off the boil in terms of supercars, but as you just said, he went to NASCAR, a series that he's never been a part of, in cars that he's never raced. On a track that didn't exist, and then he's just gone and won the bloody bloody race. What? <laughs> After coming from 18th halfway through the race. Oh my gosh! So, like, if you if you have no context for this, NASCAR in the first time in their 75 years of existing did a street race. The first time they've ever done that. Um, they did it up and down the streets of Chicago. Um, there is a team uh which is called the no, weekend yeah tr- track track house team track house. Sorry, yeah. T- so. They they have, I think, two cars in the main field and then one guest car where they try and, like, bring people in to, like, do yeah. guest appearances. I think they had Kimi Raikkonen yeah, in two they, races. They, yeah, that's right. So they have the
1: the number one ninety nine, which is Ross Chastain and Suarez. Yep. And, yeah, they have the 91, which races usually street courses. So they had Kimi Raikkonen for a couple, Gizzy for this one.
0: And, like, and, yeah, the... But he, Straight thing. Yeah, so straight away he was on the pace. Now, this is the scary thing. He topped practice and, like, in he'd never, he'd basically done like a few laps of a short course rival, top press practice, qualified third. The only reason he qualified third was because Chase Elliott, former C- series champion, was trying to sit in his wheel tracks and, f- and get a draft down some of the straights and crashed and brought out a red flag. So, that's the only reason Gizzy yeah. qualified third. Then came out in the race and like, I ended up watching the race because of all the hype. Um, It was just a typical SVG race win, you know? He just conserved tyres in the first half, got onto the right strategy, which turned out to be the wrong strategy, you know, pitted late, put on good tyres and came through the field. Yeah. It was was just typical SVG and that last,
1: those last lap battle we had was, was it Justin Haley? I think it was? Uh,
0: you I'll have to go, I'll have to go get it in. I think, um, I think his name's Justin. Yeah. But yeah,
1: it was, it was actually a really good battle for a few corners as well. Because Gizzy went, nah, see so ya.
0: Yeah. Uh, it was, it was pretty damn good. Um, like yeah. it, it really displayed the difference in the two categories when it comes to that type of racing. And like SVG was very quick to point that out. He said, like, this is the bread and butter of what I do in Australia. Like, street courses, I'm not scared of the walls. Big V8s, this is what we do. Use- he was like, apparently the only one who's ever used a clutch in a NASCAR for some reason. Um, so... Yeah, if everyone was talking about his foot...
1: Hair, he said he had, they had a foot finish because i are watching his camera work, his heel and toe work.
0: Yeah. He was like, how do you do that? Because, like, they've never, they've never had to brake and stop the rear tires from spinning up and rotate. So... Um, yeah, but whatever, he just, like, he just said, you know, these are all the things I'm already very good at, and, like, you know, some of the NASCAR guys said he basically schooled them. What, what was it? I think it was Chase Elliott yeah. said he's going to go back to Australia and tell them oil suck. Yeah, and I think it was Kyle Busch it was like, yeah, we've
1: just been absolutely schooled. Which, you well, know, which is pretty, um, pretty crazy. And Kyle Busch saying that he's one of the best NASCAR drivers of all time. <laughs>
0: it's pretty, pretty amazing like it was just it was yeah. ridiculous so he came from yeah 18th and he was pulling you know that the, those sort of like late spontaneous fade moves that you know everyone in supercars does nowadays because Shane started popularizing it and then just the NASCAR guys just didn't know what to do you just let him go well, they know
1: now. Yeah. I
0: don't think, don't think they'll be as kind to them next year. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. There, there might be a next year for Shane in NASCAR. Like, this has been something... I I, I think this has been a little overblown, okay? I, I'm going to say that. But he did say, I've got one year left in supercars and then this was awesome. I might come do this. Winkup's come out and said, like, we're going to have a chat about what the future is. Like, I, I don't think it's going to happen, but, it, you know, it, it might. It probably won't, but I can guarantee you
1: Justin Marks will be, who's the owner of, of Trackhouse Racing, will be like, Gizzy, you come back next
0: year to Chicago and maybe even the All-Star Race. Yeah, c- c- come back. Come to Watkins Glen. Come to Laguna Seca. Do all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, the, the All-Star Race is that Charlotte Charlotte on the Roval, I think, well, well has been a the Charlotte Roval.
0: Or... North Speedway, which is a really tiny oval. Yeah. I Gizzy would do a ride on that as well. It'd be pretty funny. I He has said, I remember him saying when he was interviewed by Scott McLaughlin that he wasn't a huge fan of the ovals, the idea of it doing ovals. But even if he's just a road course specialist, like that's, that's pretty rad. He'd do any car if he could fit. Gosh. <laughs> um, so, pretty incredible for Gizzy to go do that. The first driver to win his first NASCAR race, his debut race... In sixty years, which is pretty pretty impressive, I think only the seventh non-American to win in NASCAR as well. So, like, like yeah. what, what what can you what can, what can we say about Van Gisbergen that hasn't already been said? Run out of words, it's just yeah, get on you mate. Yeah, pretty much. Um I'm sure someone sure said that. Yeah. <laughs> I would love for NASCAR to release the onboard footage from the final what 15 laps of the race from from the caution period um, through to the checkered flag just to see just to see gizzy pass everyone. I have to have a look at... They actually live-streamed from his car the whole race. Really? Okay, i got to find this. Yeah,
1: I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's a rear-facing camera or not, but, yeah, he had a camera on him the whole race, and it's on YouTube.
0: Okay, i I, I got to find this. And you, dear listener, you should find this as well, because there are a few things better in life than watching a charged-up Shane Van Gisbergen pass 17 cars on the way to a debut victory in NASCAR, because, yeah, God, God like, what a guy. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, the camera cuts out just as he finishes his second burnout. Ah,
0: oh, what a shame! What a shame. Um, uh, on that note, do we think that has reawoken uh Van Gisbergen? Do you think that's gonna get his uh supercars back on track, especially coming back to Townsville? It's gonna be the confidence boost. That's for damn sure. Uh, you know, attract the. That- a track that is the sort of street hybrid and something that he's won at plenty before. Is this where we see Gizzy just charge everyone down?
1: I, I reckon it might be, you know. It's, pro- it's probably sitting back on the plane on the way back now in business class on his fourth... I don't know what he drinks. Fourth, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, he's, um, he's probably thinking, oh, yeah, I'm actually all right at this racing job. I'll be okay this weekend.
0: Yeah, and he's got a 110-point margin to overcome to be in the lead of the championship. So it is the two Erebus cars leading, Brody from Will, then Brock from Van Gisbergen. Then we have the first of the Fords in Chaz Mostert. We haven't really talked about Walkinshaw at all uh, today because there just hasn't been anything to talk about besides them being bad. Well, Mostert being average and Nick Perkett putting himself out of a driver's seat. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Like... It's been kind of depressing uh, with what's going on at Walker Shore. But I will say that uh, while both of their uh, qualifying pace has been absolutely dire, they have been at least not shit in racing. Like, I think it came up, what, 14 places or something in, in the first race in Valley? Something like that. But the fact
1: you've got to come up 14 places, it's not a good sign for your team that's usually used to running in the top top echelons of the sport.
0: Yeah, in in the top 14 on the grid, at least, so yeah, not not ideal, not the ideal way that they want to be running at the moment. Um, so townsville was this weekend. Townsville was this weekend. So make sure you're watching. Uh, the bright sunny sunshine and hopefully not feeling as cold as we are on this side of the continent because, god damn it, the temperature hasn't gotten over 13 for the past week and I'm I hate it. <laughs> I know I know those feels. Th- I've had to
1: heat around the apartment all week, but still going outside's a
0: challenge. I've been wearing friggin Three layers and a beanie, and I never wear beanies. And this, uh, this is just oh, we're getting off topic. Um, sports, right? Where do we start with all of the sport that is happening in the entirety of the world right now? Do we want to start with the
1: cricket? Well, well yeah, yeah, let's talk about the cricket because it's the holy grail of test series right now, and my god, has it been interesting.
0: Yes, so let's let's talk about the the cricket. We're talking about, of course, the Ashes. And this has been probably one of the biggest built-up Ashes series in England for a long time. Probably since 2005. And people have been talking a lot about the two five, 2005 Ashes in the last two weeks because there's been quite a few things that have been going on that make this series so far akin to the 2005 series. But let's give a little bit of context. We have talked in brief patches so far this year um, about this whole concept of English cricket and the idea of Baz which is kind of a stupid name, but it's it'll make sense in a second. The idea for the England team at the moment that uh, the best way to play is to play carefree, is to attack everything, is to not worry about the consequences, is to go hard at everything. And to be fair, it has come off for them in a lot of situations. they won 11 of the last 13 Test matches. The one that... One of the ones that they've lost, we detailed quite... Uh, Vigorously, quite extensively. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, my, and me. Um, quite uh, extensively, <laughs> uh, which was the one-run victory that New Zealand got in uh, that place that I've forgotten the name of. You'll probably remember New Zealand. I mean, I know that much. <laughs> but it, yeah, that one. I see. I knew it was a weird name. Um, so you know, they they have been. Being entertaining, being amazing, being wonderful, and going about it with a smile on their face, and you know everyone having a laugh at, in the meantime. There has been many questions over whether or not that strategy would work against the bowling lineup and the oppressive patience and skill of Australia, who arguably have sent their best team over to England this century. Um, so that has been kind of the the sort of. Ground of the the series on the way in. It was can this carefree, explosive, attacking, fun, entertaining brand of cricket that England are trying to promote hold up against the current best in the world—the best bowling lineup, the best batting lineup, the best keeping, the best team cohesion. Can can this hold up? Champions. And the World Test Champions. Yes, that also happened in the month of June. But, like, uh, you know, we were always going to win that. We were impossible to beat. Um, so, that's kind of the lead into the series. Um, On one side, you have, yeah, Australia. The other side, you have England. And, like, England in a very weird and interesting position. A very young team with very high strike rates and kind of mid-averages on the batting side. And then also, like, the oldest most prolific pair of bowlers, fast bowlers in the country or uh, in the world, rather in cricket history in Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad. Um, but things kind of already took a turn for the worst before the, the series even started. So firstly, England go into the series without a frontline spinner, uh, Jack Leach, who has been the spinner for England for the past few years, uh, discovered stress fractures in his back and he's out for the season. Um, so that kind of puts a thorn in England's side to start with, and they have to call up uh, out of retirement from two years, uh, Moeen Ali, who the last time he played Australia, he got bit, bashed around the park with both bat and ball, and you know retired from Tetch cricket because of it. Uh, and then on top of that as well, they've gone to uh, well, we've just heard now, Chris, that Ollie Pope, one of the batsmen, has dislocated his shoulder and is now out for the rest of the series with uh, with a surgery. Heading into the series, a lot of people made a lot of conjecture and a lot of thoughts and a lot of bets and all that sort of thing. You know, Glenn McGrath made his classic 5-0 speech um, saying Australia. A lot of pundits said England were going to win. Uh, a few people with brains said Australia were going to win. What were your thoughts heading into the series? I was
1: picking 3-1 Australia. Yeah? Initially. Um, I did have reservations when I saw the lineup England picked. But... Um, and I'll talk about those separately. But the series has gone pretty much the way I thought it was going to go. Um, the engine's th- biggest problem at the moment. We'll just, we'll
0: just, we'll just quickly say uh, we are already two tests in at, at the time of recording. We've already had the first two tests. Um, so we're already part way through the series. Um, so with that in context in mind, let's. Do you want to talk about the first test?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so the first test. Yeah, to remind me was Edgebaston relatively. Com- yes, Edgebaston uh, relatively comfortable in the end for Australia. <laughs> uh, 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 kind but, of, kind of, but it, England's biggest problem, and this is the biggest problem with the second test as well. They're needing to take twenty-four wickets a game to get the twenty batsmen out. Yes, minimum.
0: yes. So they're they're making chances, but not taking chances. Yes. And a lot of that is down
1: to, I'm sorry to say, Johnny Beesdo.
0: Yes, I 100% agree, and we'll talk more about Johnny Birstow, uh at uh, in a few minutes. But uh, for context, he's the the keeper. Um, he has been. I would I would say Chris, and I think you'll agree with me. Uh, Johnny Besto is not the best wicketkeeper in England.
1: He's been the best wicketkeeper for his for his um, county side.
0: Yeah. So. England have chosen Johnny Besto because he he fits the attacking positive mindset archetype in his batting more so than his skill as a keeper. The best keeper in England at the moment is probably uh, Folkes, um, who was in the side when uh, when they came to Australia last time and got beaten four point nine nil. But uh, you know hasn't really been a feature of the side because he is not an aggressive and outspoken and positive Batman. Um But if you look at Australia, who have Alex Carey, uh, you would have to you could make a pretty good case, Chris, to say that difference. the difference between Carey and Bestow has been the difference between the two sides. Yeah, and this is going to
1: something that I've always maintained about Test Cricket. Not necessarily short form, but you always pick your best keeper in Tess. And and many runs, well the amount of runs they score, okay, you might have a Gilchrist type who scores 60 a match. Yeah. For yeah. example. But generally
0: what what is what's Kerry's average? Around thirty odd? Just quite handy. Let's let's look that up. He's been quite a yeah. prolific run scorer himself. Um, since he fell in the pool at Karachi, in Karachi uh, when they were in Pakistan uh, like two years ago. Um, but <laughs> since then, he's been doing very well with the bat. Um, he is definitely handy, but more than that, he's a great batsman. Yeah. I oh, mean, sorry, great and keeper. This
1: oh, is yeah, and this is my point. A great keeper is going to save you more with his glove work than he's ever going to score with the bat. In nine, nine cases out of ten.
0: Yeah and we've seen that happen in the first two tests like in the first test Johnny Bairstow missed the stumping from Cameron Green and dropped a uh, dropped a catch from Alex Carey and they're just the two that I can remember off the top of my head both of them in the first innings went on to make 50s so that's yeah. that's you know Massive. that's 80 runs that Bairstow himself has put down on the flip side Carey was able to manage to manage to affect two very difficult stumpings, uh, one uh, from a swipe, like a missed swipe from Joe Brute, um, and then another one down the leg side. He was able to affect them both without missing either of those chances, which, you know, are chances that have swung the match in Australia's favour. Yeah. And then before we get to whatever the hell Johnny Bessie did in the second match... What a
1: spot! But we'll get to that separately. Yeah, we'll get to that separately. Uh, But yeah, yeah, that first test... uh, it also didn't help that they pulled out a really branded declaration in the first innings.
0: Well, I actually, I don't think it's actually that brain dead. I think the justification was solid. So for context, uh, at the end of day one, uh, uh, with about four or uh, 30 minutes left, um, Stokes captain of the England side declares at three ninety one for for eight. Um, with the justification of, I wanted to have a goal at the Australian top order. Now, if they had taken a wicket or two in those 20 minutes that they had to bowl, that would have been like an absolute master strike. People would have been lauding it as like the best declaration that's ever happened. As it happened, because Warner and Kawaja effectively didn't come to the party, they were like, we're not going to play at anything. We're going to block it all out and we're just going to get through to tomorrow. Because that happened, it kind of looks like a bit of a dud declaration. That's, uh, yeah. uh, that's, that's my thought. But that, I think that also set Uzzy up for his
1: massive inning score. Gave him, you know, a good few overs just to get out there and see the ball, basically.
0: Yes, and now this has been the, the key, the sort of really interesting thing about this Test Series so far. Usman Khawaja has been by far the best batsman of the series, you know, aside from the freak innings from Ben, Spok- ben Stokes at Lords. Um, he has done that, striking at, like, such a slow strike rate. So he, what? His first innings, he scored 141 off of 320 balls. So striking at 40, 40 runs per hundred balls. In the second innings, again, striking at 33 runs per hundred balls. Scored 65. Like he's the the complete antithesis in the level of patience that he has versus everything yeah, else wallable. that is basketball Yeah, he's playing wall-a-ball exactly exactly and it's you know we you, you don't necessarily need all that explosiveness right at the top because I mean you've got Davey Warner there and then you've got the two best bats in the world after him and then you've got Travis Head who can come in and strike at 100 if you want um, so you know Australia kind of has all those bases covered yeah although
1: Lavishane's had a bit of a mare
0: that's true Lavishane has had a bit of a mare um so, just to wrap up on Edgbaston, it was actually quite a quite a well-fought test match in the end. As, uh, as we may have mentioned, England made 293 for eight in the first day. Australia came out nice, and, and batted and scored 386. So, you know, only seven runs behind. And that was with a late innings collapse as well. Um, England then came out and set 273 uh, f- uh which meant that Australia had to score 281 to win the game now 281 and edge baston is kind of a touchy subject to Australians uh for those who remember <laughs> the 2000- 2005 series um i believe the, the the target in 2005 was 282 and that was really the tipping point in the 2005 ashes series england ended up winning that game by two runs um after a late Innings partnership between Brett Lee and Michael Kasprowicz failed at the very, very end of the of the day. So um, it was great that Australia managed to get over the line. That felt really, really good. <laughs> um, but oh, uh, two wickets, a little bit
1: of synchronicity there.
0: Yeah, just, 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 a, just a smidge. But it was really, really down to a captain's knock from Pat Cummins to to get Australia over the line after Alex Carey and Usman uh, Khawaja had gotten out uh, late on in the piece. Um, so very tight test match there to start things off um the media coverage of that game though especially in the aftermath was kind of confusing it very much made yeah. it f- made it feel like england had won the game despite the fact that they that they that they'd lost well yeah they were talking about how baseball was
1: working and it's an exciting test and that's what we want to see and but but no.
0: no no like it it kind That's of it, it it kind of glossed over the fact that Australia had played well and played themselves out of a, a little bit of a hole by doing something very very well and doing something that was a bit surprising. You know, not very often do you see the last you know or well, the eighth wicket put on sixty runs to win a match, for example. Um, but you know, if you'd read the press coverage afterwards, you would have thought that England would have won uh, had won that Test match, but they they absolutely didn't. And it was kind of surprising to me yeah. how much it, the the coverage was ging up the English side as if it was, you know, a great thing that they'd gotten that close. But that's the English tabloid media in a nutshell. They're quick to praise and quick to turn on you. Well, let's get to Lords, because I think we're in the second phase of that at the moment. Um, So the Lords test match... Uh, Lord... was... Go ahead, sorry. Lords had absolutely everything. Well, this is the thing it didn't start with absolutely everything. It started off very slow and very sort of well actually no that's why it started off with a protest um for the the the, the just stop <laughs> oil uh which was you know. It's something a very serious it was issue. Hilarious. That, I mean, it was hilarious. Uh, you know, they, they had people running onto the pitch with orange powdered paint and trying to throw it on the on the on the uh, on the pitch, and they ended up getting carted off by Johnny Besto, the keeper, um, like who literally like held a guy under his arm and dragged him off the pitch, um, which was secure <laughs> the most secure his hands have been in the series. Yeah, well, the only time of English dominance the entire day because basically that first day, uh, it was a very green wicket, overcast skies. England put Australia into bat and got nothing out of it. Australia ended up putting on four hundred and sixteen on the f- on the first innings off the back of a Steve Smith century, which is good to see. Um, but it's really emotional century as well. Yeah, really, really, really good to see him back in the runs and back doing so well. Yeah, because- Especially saying it's probably the last time he's going to play at Lords.
1: Yeah. And to get his name on that on a board yet again.
0: And for a cricket nuffy like him, means absolutely everything. It, it does. And Lords is, of course, the home of cricket, which will be important later. Um, so, following up, England were doing quite well. They were 180 odd for one on a pitch that was offering nothing, and then completely fell apart and were all out for 325. So that gave Australia a like one hundred and something run lead heading into the second innings. Yeah, they they imploded harder than anything else that happened. Well, and and this is as well with Australia losing Nathan Lyon, which is their front, their frontline spinner who got three wickets in the last innings of the uh, the Edgbaston test Test um, with a calf injury, quite serious calf injury. So Lyon's actually out for the rest of the series now. Yeah, but Travis
1: Head came on and took two wickets in the innings. <laughs>
0: Because who needs Nathan Lyon when you've got uh, Na- uh, yeah Travis Head? Um, so yeah. heading into the second innings, um, Australia once again do their thing. They plot along. So the runway for the Australians were two. It was two point seven, and something very interesting happened. England played negatively. They played the most boring negative. Uh, effectively body line sort of a series and body line is a word that any cricket fan will like it will instantly pick up their ears they'll go ooh what bodyline? how like how is that even allowed there was basically they basically just bowled bounces, bounces and bouncers and bouncers trying to get into the into the shoulders into the helmets and it was just it was boring to watch it was boring to think about and it just sucked it was just a, a very negative cowardly Neg- tactic and if I may say
1: so, terrible umpiring.
0: Yes. Now uh,
1: explain why. Because there mind. comes a point,
0: the, because there comes
1: a point that, oh, I mean, firstly, two bounces and over that wasn't being enforced, and secondly, the, and this is from my umpire training I did with Paul Rifle. You did umpire training with Paul Rifle? Why am yeah, um, I umpired a couple of seconds? Why am I only um, learning about this now? <laughs> I know, right? Crazy. What? Bob Perry pulled a rifle. Um, sorry. Continue. Yeah, yes. So after a while, it can become pretty intimidatory bowling if you're just doing it constantly. And yes, okay, they're professionals and they're elites of the game, so it's not intimidatory as such. But it, it can get dangerous. Yeah. I and yeah. the umpires really could put a stop to
0: that, and saying, "Hey." You get your two and over, that's it. Uh, yeah, I think it, w- it wasn't really enforced at all. And the thing that stood out to me mm. in the middle session of day four, when England were trying their absolute best to A, stop Australia scoring runs and B, get wickets, they bowled 98% of deliveries in a region that is defined as short. So a region that is over 10 meters from the, uh, the batsman stumps. That is... Which is ridiculous. That is absurd. That is absurd. That is incredibly... It's it's,
1: it's just so negative. It's like they watched Neil Wagner. Or, you know, Ber- Ber- Brendan McCallum said, this is what Wa- Neil Wagner did for us. You do it now. And all of them did it.
0: Yeah, it's... It was kind... Oh, it was just... It was just really... It, it was absurd. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. And, you know, the bouncer is a delivery that is very powerful and gets a lot of wickets because of its surprise factor. It doesn't really work if that's all you're bowling. Exactly.
1: Um, You know, if you're bowling bowling bounces like two or three and over, then you usually follow up with a Yorker or something just on fourth stump. But they didn't do any of that. No, it's just ridiculous. Um,
0: And they got their just desserts for it because Australia was just like, yeah, whatever. We we don't need to win this game. Well, I mean, it, it it did end up falling that way in the end because Australia did end up getting out to it. You know, they did score, what... Uh, only 273 with you know a top score of Kawaja at the very top of the innings. But even then, he eventually succumbed to the short ball barrage. They all will eventually be- succumb to the short ball barrage. Um, and I'll pose a question to you, Chris. When you've got good swing and seam bowlers like Joe Root, uh, not Joe Root, uh, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, and Ollie Robinson oh, in Root. your lineup. Root. I know. I don't know why Root's name came into my head. I think I was just looking at it. Um, why on earth are you resorting to this tactic? Because the pitch was giving you nothing. Why on earth was the pitch giving them nothing?
1: Because they prepared them for bad ball.
0: Because they asked for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, surprise, surprise, you've taken out what makes English cricket actually good. And that's that's bowling in the English conditions. I think, what well, we saw the first day of Edgebaston, we saw the ball move a bit, but since then it's been pretty much... Nothing. The well, only movement you got at Lords was from the slope.
0: Well, I a little bit of that, but also the the new ball seemed to move. Um, I think Starks' wicket of Ollie Pope, where he completely bowled him all ends up with an in swinging Yorker, was oh, love that. Um, but that was that was a genuinely swinging ball. So do we talk? But that's it. I mean, that's true. So do we talk about the final day now? Oh, the final day, the day that basically broke everyone in the office because they turned the TV on at 8 o'clock and couldn't turn it off again. This is true. I was a very tired boy on Monday because of it. So, England start the day uh, 114 for four. So, they've already lost the four wickets. The target is 371 or survive. Um, there was also a little bit of controversy at the very end of uh, the the uh, day, five, uh, day four evening. Uh, Mitchell Stark took a catch, which wasn't a catch. Um, because he put the ball on the ground, and I think everyone once they figured out what it was for was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, we can see why that is." Um, you know, yeah. unless you're a die-hard Australian one-eyed
1: fan, yes, you knew that was not out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, short ball barrage from Australia as well, but they do it a little bit better. Ducker ends up uh edging one behind to Alex Carey, who takes a good catch. Um, Johnny Besto comes in, and something stupid happens. Uh, so. At the end of an over of Cam Green Bowling, Green bowls a bouncer, Johnny Besto ducks underneath it, wanders out of his crease, and the th- and the stumps get thrown down. So, the stumps have been broken, Johnny besto's out of his crease, the ball was not dead, and he's out. He's out-stumped. Um, yeah. Not, well, initially, he was given out run-out. Yeah, but seeing as he was out of his crease, not in the act of making a run, he got changed to stumped. Now, Chris, before we go any further is that out yes so why are people talking about this still because spirit of
1: cricket the, mo- the the phrase i hate most from this game
0: okay so let's let's break this down why is this because why has this become such a controversial piece of uh, the game on the uh, over the week. What about this dismissal has incise, inc, incised? Incised? That's not. That, is that the word that it's I want? In, enraged? Enraged, I guess. But it's, it's like, not really. In, in, it, I mean, I guess there's a bit of rage. What is? What about incited. this to piss people off? Um, well, for one,
1: you're going against the spirit of cricket doctrine and in commas at the home of cricket with the MCC who make the rules of cricket and the spirit of cricket guidelines. Again, inverted commas on that. And a pivotal moment of the match. If Johnny BSO had hung around for another 40, 50 runs, the result could have been completely different.
0: Okay, it could have been, sure. But <laughs> But every single cricketer From have-a-go cricket to grade cricket to big bash to test cricket knows that you stay in your crease until the ball is actually dead. Um... Yes. And Besto knows this himself. He is a wicketkeeper. He tried to do exactly the same thing to Manus Labashain in the first test. Exactly the same thing. And so there's a bit of hypocrisy there, but that's okay. The spirit of cricket only matters when it goes against England. If it's not against England, they don't care. Um... There was an interesting bit of analysis from Mark Taylor and Michael Atherton, who were the two, uh, two former captains of the respective side, um, who were on commentary at the point of time. Taylor very quickly noticed that um, he went back and had a look and noticed that Bairstow did exactly the same routine uh, in the previous four balls of that over. So after every single ball, he scratched behind the crease and walked out of his crease. Now, that is all well and fine as long as the ball is dead. What Alex Carey did is as soon as he received the ball from the bouncer as the wicketkeeper, he threw it back at the stumps. So at no point was there a moment where the ball was dead. Alex Carey has not waited for Bairstow to get out of his crease. He has not tried to bait Bairstow out of his crease. He has not done anything untoward that has affected what Bairstow has done. He got the ball and he threw the ball. And there was like no time in between. And if you
1: read the read the laws of cricket around this the ball is t- to consider dead when it's finally at rest in the keeper's hands or in the hands of a fielder or when both sides consider it dead neither of those conditions were met
0: and so besto's out yeah besto's out yeah and it's
1: a completely fair enough dismissal and besto is a friggin idiot exactly
0: um now. Chris, what was the crowd's response to Besto being a complete freaking idiot? <laughs> <sighs> Don't you just love English crowds?
1: Uh, Some of the most parochial one night dickheads you're ever going to give gonna
0: meet. Okay, so let, let's, let's address a little bit of the fallout. So, of course, Besto's given out, uh, he glares at everyone on the way off. Crowd starts chanting, same old Australians always cheating or something along those lines. When the when the two teams go off for lunch, now at Lords, Lords is kind of special. In To get into the pavilion, you have to walk through what's called the long room. So members are allowed to be in the long room. So you're actually walking into the room with the members who will then part allow you to get to the, the rooms. The amount of abuse the Australian team got from the members who should be, you know, quite well mannered. Uh, Because they are, it's quite expensive to be a member at Lords, and as you know, guardians of the game or whatever they want to call themselves is, you know, the uptight knob stockings that they are. They're very uptight about the way that they do things. Um, They're, you know, they're being booed, people are yelling cheat. And, you know, even... Uh, there's a few other things that have been said that haven't been revealed that obviously incised the Australians quite a lot because Usman Khawaja came to a stop and told security, that one right there, get rid of him. And a few members got their membership suspended for being assholes. So, you know, quite I a... I think it's worse than that. I mean, yeah, it should be. Um, uh, So quite a quite a high-temper uh moment in the game. Um, And then we had... Uh, some magic from Ben Stokes. <laughs> ben Stokes,
1: he decided, right, this has happened.
0: Screwed a lot of you. Yeah. Was it three sixes in an over? They really started it off? Well, yeah, he got it, it was two gammon green overs in a row. One of them went for 24. The other one went for 28. Um, one of them had three sixes in a row, which brought up Stokes' century. Uh, and then it just it just kind of got a little it got a little out of hand so for those who who aren't aware Ben Stokes is the captain of the english team um and has been known for making making <sighs> Making things happen, which is yeah, making the impossible happen, making sporting miracles happen, and both you, Chris, and I have been on the receiving ends of many a Stokes miracle. Um, You know, two in the same summer. One, which was at Lords, the World Cup final, wherein he basically dragged England out from an unwinning, unwinnable position into a winning position um, by the barest of margins. And I'm sorry for saying that. Uh, And the other one was, huh? I'm going to kick you out of this chat for that. <laughs> I am sorry. And the other one was <laughs> at, at Headingley in 2019 where in a similar situation chasing on the fourth uh, on the on the fourth innings Stokes went beast mode and managed to win a test match from absolutely nowhere um and for a while there a lot of a few Australians were quite nervous me maybe included I don't I can neither confirm nor deny that Stokes would take it away again um but in the end some Better bowling and some better tactics meant that Stokes hold out to Alex Carey with the wicket keeping gloves, and from there it was a formality. It was a crazy two hours of cricket in an otherwise procedural innings, effectively. Yeah.
1: But that's the beauty of Tiss cricket. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like it's like a Le Mine twenty four where all the P1s die apart from one. You just the unexpected can happen.
0: Yeah, and then it might only be the unexpected for an hour or so and then everything goes back to normal. And that's pretty much what happened, you know. Um, Mm. Australia very quickly mopped up the tail in nine overs after Stokes got out and it was, you know, a a well-fought test victory. But the fallout has been very much focused on this stupid moment involving Johnny Birstow and Alex Carey. And you know what, Chris? I think this has masked, really, the fact that England had no answers.
1: Yes, that's it's really been a deflectionary tactic for more th- more than anything. Yeah. Um, the because... fact that Brendan McCallum is stoking a lot of the flames as well is not being well received.
0: I bet I, I've done a little bit of digging into Brendan McCullum uh, and his words and his personality since then. Uh, since the all the comments that he said and turns out Brendan McCollum's a bit of a dick. I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: yeah, he went through a bit of a. O come, all ye faithful! I'm I'm a changed man, but yeah, he was an absolute arsehole on and off the track,
0: and still track, and still Ew. was a bit of an arsehole off track. So, yeah, so the, the Brendan McCullum's is a, a Kiwi sporting icon, actually, uh, to be fair. And uh, is now coaching the the uh, the England team, which is where this whole baseball idea comes from, the idea of playing carefree. Um, but clearly, they do care quite a bit, because otherwise they wouldn't be kicking up such a stink after being 2-0 down in a home Ashes series, which they've been trying to say has been their best chance of winning the Ashes for, you know, a decade. Um, it, it, to me, Chris, kind of speaks to the fact that England just have a, a very quickly run out of ideas and are looking to blame anything and anyone but themselves. Because, let's be real, yeah. they asked for flat pitches, they got flat pitches, they haven't been able to use the flat pitches, their batting has been dire, they've not been in control of the game at any real points, and despite Australia losing the toss, having the hardest of the batting conditions, and losing their frontline spinner, at no point was Australia behind the game.
1: No, not at all. I just don't get yeah, like Australia is not the only one that's fallen into this trap oh, sorry, England's not the only team that's fallen into the trap of preparing pitches that actually work to Australia's advantage as well. Like we've seen it. Australian teams have like have struggled a bit with the moving ball. So why not prepare a pitch where the ball moves?
0: Exactly. Uh, you know, it it's it has been like
1: a normal English pitch.
0: Exactly. Like exactly. Like you only have to look to the last Ashes series to see at times Australia fall apart when the ball was moving. You look back to 2017 or whenever it was when we were last in England, and Stuart Broad got eight wickets for 15 runs in one morning because the yeah. ball was moving sideways. Like it's not rocket science. It's just like do especially, what you're good at.
1: Especially, especially when your bowlers are, you know, your two frontline bowlers are in their 70s. Exactly, and like, and they're still bloody good at moving the ball. And you've got a new bowler, then Josh Tong, who's licking the opposition. He, nice. I'm I'm impressed with his. I'm impressed with how he's going. Actually, I I like him.
0: Well, t- he seemed to be the only one in that entire English team in the first three days that actually cared about being out there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Um. It's a bit of weird action, but God, I do like. A, I do like the cut of his jib. Well, he, did, he does offer something different. And now, something that uh, a lot of people have been saying about the English team is that their bowlers are all very samey. I mean, you've got Jimmy Anson, who's a 120-ish kilometre per hour outswinging bowler. And you've got Stuart Broad, who's a 120-kilometre per hour-ish outswinging bowler. You've got Ollie Robinson, who's a 120-kilometre per hour-ish outswinging bowler. And you've got Josh Tung, who does something a little bit different. He's a bit more, bowls, as, as the Australians would say, bowls a heavy ball. Um, but like, you know, their, their attack is extremely samey and on flat pitches that aren't doing much, it's just kind of, no wonder they bounced everyone for two hours in the middle like, what else were they going to do? They were just going to get scored to all corners of the ground apart from that. Yeah. Yeah. So wrapping up, wrapping up on the ashes, uh, we have three more test matches left. Uh, one of them starts on Thursday uh, at Headingley, which is notorious for having a very actively involved crowd. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just what we need after the le- after the Lords. No, e- exactly. Um after after that uh the Ashes go to um go to Manchester, Old Trafford, and then back to London yep. at the Oval. Um Yep. 2 0 Australia What happens now?
1: I can see Leeds being pretty heavily weather-affected, unfortunately.
0: The forecast did not look great. Um, keeping in mind, but, by the way, England need to win yeah. all three Test matches to win the series. Yes. I can't see that happening.
1: I, I definitely can't. I can see them winning one. Maybe maybe drawing and
0: drawing one and winning one, but winning three, no. So what you're saying is your three-one prediction's pretty on point <laughs> at the moment, absolutely. Um, yeah i i I don't think I can see this England team winning a Test match. Not the way that they're playing. Not the pitches that they've got.
1: I can see them winning the fifth one when Australia don't care as much.
0: Yeah, uh, that's I can only see them winning a dead rubber, and the and the reason is yeah. that they've entirely run out of ideas. If, if their plan A is aggression and vibes and that hasn't worked for two test matches and like some of the cricket in the second test match was absolutely dire. Like, you know, that, the middle session of just bowling bounces was the most boring session of cricket I've ever watched. And I've watched Faf Duplessis block an entire day of cricket like a three hundred and forty consecutive deliveries to save a test match at Adelaide Oval in person, and that was more interesting than watching cricket than watching England bowl bounces, one hundred and twenty kilometer an hour bounces for two hours. I if that's the strategy that they can, up, can come up with, if this is that playing positively and you know entertaining, saving test match cricket, then they've got no chance. <laughs> exactly,
1: but having said that. If they weren't playing the style, I reckon they probably would have lost each game by close to an innings. Yeah, fair. <laughs>
0: if is that the state of English cricket, you reckon? I don't think so. Gosh, don't let don't let the English hear you say that. They might I don't know, yell at you yell that you're a cheat until they're red on the face. Yeah.
1: I've, I've been to the country I've seen the offense of the Southampton game that's fine
0: uh, yeah well I have to ask you about that because that's something that we' should probably uh make mention of as well um by the way if you want to if, if you want to know more if you want to follow along more with the story of everything that happened during the, these test matches um there is a particular writer on ESPN Crick info who I think has done a really really good job in Telling the story of the theater of the, te- of the test as opposed to just reporting on what's happened. Um, the guy is called Vithushan um, Ihantharaja, I think. Um, he's, uh, or they've written, like, as I said, articles on the theater of what's happening, not just a report on this is what's happened. That gives a really, really good idea of how the game shaped out and how the game felt after each day and if you are a cricket nuffy like us too i reckon you'll get a lot out of it so espn Crick info look for him vish e on twitter as well so yeah have a look do cuz chris is going to go read his articles afterwards as well <laughs> um absolutely everyone speak. yeah a few things to finish up on the ashes before we talk about other cricket um Nathan Lyon out for series, torn calf muscle. Todd yeah. Murphy comes in. Uh, do we feel confident about Todd Murphy?
1: Yeah, he's fine.
0: He's fine. Cool. He's young, but he's he's he's
1: he's, he's, he's another leg spinner, young leg spinner. He'll be fine. Um,
0: uh, Ollie Pope out. Uh, I'm not sure who. Pardon me. Not not sure who comes in to replace him. But uh, that's a a blow for England, is it? What I would do bring in folks, keep besto So move besto up and bring in folks as a wicketkeeper. Yep. I, I see you've been reading a lot of comments on R slash cricket. I read that exact same comment earlier today.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it's the most logical thing. You got yeah. someone who's at least match hardened.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, what about uh, Australia's bowling lineup? They have the luxury of three fast bowlers who have more than 200 test wickets and then also Scott Boland and also Michael Nisa. Um, Do we see Bolan back in the series? Do we see Nisa get a shot? What goes on there? I think...
1: I think this test you see maybe Bolan come back because I don't necessarily think Nisa's going to play too much at the moment. Yeah. He'll probably play a couple of the matches later on. But yeah, I think he may bring bringing back in and rest. Who hasn't rested yet? Well, Commons and Hazelwood... Well, you can't risk coming, so maybe Hazelwood sits out for a game.
0: I, I'd kind of prefer that. I, I like having Stark in the team because he's a bit of an X factor. He might go for runs, but also mm. he might just snag wickets. And when he gets on song, he gets on song.
1: Yes. So yeah. the same thing with Boland. So bring Boland in. Give, give um Hazelwood a well-earned rest. And maybe last maybe last couple of games, he'd bring Nisa in if Australia's already won it.
0: Yeah. Okay. dokie okay. Um... So yeah, next test starts on Thursday. So everyone, get your get your eyes on that, and uh, because I'm sure it's going to be full of full of a lot. (laughs) It's gonna be full of everything. Could have full of everything. Um, it's not just the the men's ashes that is happening at the moment. It's also the women's ashes happening at the moment. Um, similar sort of deal. Uh, Australia have been the team in women's cricket for the past. 6 years or so. Uh they've won the Cricket World Cup, they won the T20 World Cup, they won Commonwealth games, they won the Cricket World Cup again and they are uh... In the process of already defending their ashes title, um, hasn't all gone smoothly for the Aussie- Aussies. Um, Meg Lanning, the captain, was ruled out of the series with a mystery illness. Uh, well, sorry, with an illness that has not been revealed to the public. So whatever that is for Meg, we we hope that it goes well and yeah. that she's back on her feet and back on the in the team as soon as she can be. Um, that's left the captaincy with Alyssa Healy, who's uh done very well considering that she's gotten broken fingers in both of her hands as a wicketkeeper, um, which she didn't tell anyone until after the test match. So good on her. Um, both uh, on the flip side, England have come in with a, a quite a young bowling lineup. They've had two of their elder statesmen in, Cat, uh, sorry, in, uh, Catherine Siverbrunt and uh, Anya Shrubsole, uh retire. And so they've come in with brand new, um, brand new bowlers in in the in the form of um, Lauren Filer and I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Bell, and she's been doing very Lauren well. Lauren Bell. Lauren Bell. New Lawrence. I I I thought it was, but I didn't want to because that sounded wrong. Um. <laughs> anyway. Um. Uh. So so the the again the game plan is Australia's experience versus England's sort of flair and youth. And so far, it has been Australia's experience that has done the business. We had the test match already. Um, Australia didn't dominate the test match, um, but... It actually kind of went very similar to the men's first test. Yeah, it was really uh, really quite intriguing because it, I at no point did any team feel ahead until the very end of the last day. Yeah. Um,
1: Australia's innings was really... Helped out with a 99 to Elise Perry to start she, with. She is a gun. She she,
0: she deserves to play yeah. more Test cricket.
1: She deserves to play in the men's side sometimes. I reckon.
0: Oh, she might not get a game for Australia. She might get a game for the English team.
1: <laughs> that wasn't the most incredible innings of that of that uh, most incredible innings of that first innings. Annabelle Sutherland, right? 137
0: coming in at eight batting with a tail and then at the end just going completely ham. And and she telegraphed it too. She scored a, a century in the warm-up game to save the test, uh, save the test, save the warm-up game um, against England A, who scored a ludicrous amount of runs and it kind of indicted, it was a poor showing from the Australian bowlers in that regard. But yeah, she, she telegraphed exactly what was happening and like, good on her for converting that into a test match century. Like, goddamn. Yeah. um, And, and- then Eng come out yeah. And Tammy Beaumont opening bats the whole innings 208. Which is the, uh, I think it's the eighth highest score by a woman in test matches ever. Yeah. What a girl. And, and again, backing up straight off of the, uh, the practice game. She scored an unbeaten 200 not out at, uh, against Australia A in the warm-up game. So again, doing it on form and doing really, really well.
1: Yeah. So, the first innings was actually very close. Uh, Australia 473, England 463. So, then the Australians came out in the second innings Beth Mooney 85, Phoebe Litchard, Litchard 46. Uh, but then the English bowlers started coming back. So, Sophie Eccleston took five. Um, Kate Cross was chipping with the couple as well as Lauren Filler. And they dismissed Australia for 257, which, you know, not a bad thing. Third inning score,
0: yeah, and, it's and it's
1: England had to win.
0: That that was really helped out by Alyssa Healy setting a fifty late in the innings, just to really just give yeah. give the bowlers something to defend. Um, but a really good platform at the top of the innings um, by the by the and by she, the top three.
1: And she really gave a wicket away too, um, which is a life um, toss. She just sort of chipped up,
0: <laughs> but she'd already made fifty at that point And like we don't, it was yeah. like the ninth wicket, so it was basically innings over anyway. Um. Yeah. But on the on the final day of the uh, of the test match, Ash Gardner woke up and chose violence. (laughs) Yeah. Because eight for sixty six. How many times have you seen eight for in a test innings? Not often. Not. How many times have you seen Ash Gardner Gardner just dominate? Well, it was. It's kind of scary because she can do this and like. Okay. Yeah. Full disclosure. I have been somewhat critical of Ash Gartner's cricket since the the Big Bash series where she did, like, nothing. Where she got, like, six ducks out of eight innings and took, like, five wickets for the whole series. I've been kind of questioning Ash's place in that team since then. But she can do stuff like this. She can turn a game on its head by just being... In, like she's just got that X factor I don't know what it is every now and then something just happens and clicks and she will just destroy a team and like it wasn't like any of the shots that the English women were playing were bad shots they were just completely undone by what Ash was throwing down at them it was terrifying <laughs> really terrifying yeah. the only one
1: that was, the only one that was really given away was Nat Scott Brunt um who basically went for a horrible one-legged one-knee pull and just got done. <laughs> <And> that, <laughs> was,
0: that was really disappointing because uh, Nat Silverbrunt, she's one of the best batsmen in in England, and she has been the thorn in Australia's side forever, forever. Like I think in the in the World mm-hmm. Cup that was in uh, in New Zealand uh, two years ago, or was it last year in New Zealand last year? Um, Silverbrunt mm-hmm. scored. A unbeaten century in the uh, group stage game and an unbeaten century in the final, but yeah, like so, yeah, it was just a bit a bit brain uh, a bit of a brain fade from her, um, and yeah, it kind of started the the slide for England who lost their last uh, eight wickets for just on a hundred runs, um, so yeah, what a day.
1: So yeah, and so with the women's Ashes as well, we should mention it's a mixed format series, so there's T20s, one days, and a Test match. Test
0: match worth six points. So no, not That's anymore. They've actually changed not it. Sure t- so it, the test match is only worth four points. Um, sorry, four points. You're right. Yes, because um, because they didn't want the test match to basically decide the series. But yeah, you know, you know, like it's basically it's already decided the series. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So since since then, we've already had one of the first T20s, or well, the first of the T20s as well, which Australia won off the back of Beth Mooney doing Beth Mooney things. Um really, it should have been quite a cruise for Australia, but what happened was uh they kind of let England get away it at the very in the very last over uh they let Amy Jones get to forty off of twenty one balls, which you know turned the target from one thirty to one fifty um and then they needed like five runs from the last over and then just like got out twice and had to score a boundary on the last second to last ball in order to really seal it so yeah, whoops. But hey, still got the points. Which means
1: six points with four matches left to go? Uh, five. Um, two, so we'll t- go. two T20s, Fast, three one days. Yep. So basically another win now puts Australia onto eight points with eight more points. So that's going to be enough for them to hold the ashes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Australia in a very good position. And like, I will say that despite Australia being in a very good position and looking like they're still going to be the dominant team, England have closed the gap and there's no denying that. Um, You know, England is still a very young team. Um, A lot of new faces, particularly in the bowling lineup to, to get blooded in. Um, Whereas Australia, even though they have a few new places, those new faces have been around the Australian setup for a long time. So Phoebe Litchfield has come in as an opener for Australia. And she has been a name that is touted, has been touted since at least 2019 or 2018. Um, but she is only 20. Like, she's just turned 20 this year. And she's come in and has absolutely bossed it straight from the off. But she's been around the setup for, like, five years already as a 20-year-old, which is kind of terrifying. Chris, what were you doing as a 20-year-old? <laughs> um, nothing I can say on broadcast. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, Okay, so Uh, Women's Ashes uh, next T20 is on uh, Thursday morning Australian time at about 3 in the morning. Um, So keep your eyes and ears out for that. Um, Chris, it is already uh, an hour and 20 minutes into this podcast. We need to whiz through the next few things quick smart. What is next on our agenda and why is it more women's sport? Women's World Cup of soccer being played in our neck of the woods. What? I
1: know, right? So yeah, Women's World Cup starts mid July, July 9- twentieth, I think is the start date. I have to double check that. But yeah, being played in Australia and New Zealand. And not just a token I New Zealand can have a few games. Hosting
0: four pools in games right up to the semis. I think that's really, really cool. I think it's cool that they've done uh four pools in Australia, four pools in New Zealand. I probably would have like I probably would have liked another pool in Australia just so that way we'd have a bit more of a like a few more games going on in the major cities, but I still think it's good that they split it evenly across both countries. The only weird thing about
1: that is there's only three round of 16 games in New Zealand. So two teams who play all their poor games in New Zealand have to come to Sydney for a round of 16, then go back to New Zealand for a quarter final.
0: I mean, which is a bit bizarre. I mean, what can you do when we had the cricket world cup in Australia and New Zealand, we had teams jumping across the ditch every second day. So I mean, it's it's not a it's not an onerous fly, that's for sure. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is also the first tournament, first women's tournament to go thirty two teams. So mirroring the men's tournament at the moment, which like I think is really really good. Oh, it's fantastic. money uh, money's still an issue. They're
1: still only getting a quarter of the men's prize money, but you know, progress.
0: Yeah. Um, who do you reckon are the key teams in each group? Like. I don't really follow follow women's soccer, so I don't really know what's going on. Um, I know that New Zealand are in Group A and Australia are in Group B. Um, who who are the real teams that we should be looking at as teams to possibly win the um, yeah win win the tournament outright?
1: So yeah, Group A: New Zealand, Norway, Switzerland, and Philippines. Philippines first time in the World Cup, coached by someone you might know, Alan Stadic. Oh, I do know that name. Yeah, former Australian women's coach. Yes, is that a good thing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, it's the Philippines. The Philippines. They aren't. They are much good. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Fair. <laughs> I think New Zealand are a sneaky chance of getting out of that pool. Okay. Uh, who would be the teams that um, you'd say would probably be the the team like the ones to get out of the pool? Norway, Switzerland would be the two.
1: Switzerland and New Zealand, I think, will be very similar. They're ranked pretty similarly as well. So that match on the 30th of July in Dunedin will be pivotal, I think. Okay. Group B, yeah, Group B has Australia, obviously, with the Republic of Ireland, Nigeria, Canada. Australia should get out of that pool, no problem. And
0: then I think Nigeria might get one. Ooh, that's that's pretty bold. That's a pretty interesting uh, interesting call there. Is the Nigerian women's soccer team that good?
1: No. No. But it's Ireland. <laughs> it's Ireland's first time in the World Cup as well.
0: Okay. Um it's interesting to me that you say Australia should get through that quite cleanly. I know that the, the Matildas have been good in patches, but in the lead up to like in the qualification process for this tournament which you know was immaterial to Australia because we were we're hosting. We did so poorly, like aggressively poorly. So I hope that that has turned around. Yeah. Of course,
1: I'm saying this with Canada. They'll top the pool. Okay, cool. Um, But I do think Australia should take care of Ireland and Nigeria. Yeah. Pool C, Spain, Costa Rica, Zambia, Japan. Now, Spain are ranked sixth in the world. Japan 11th. So they should be your two. Zambia's 81st. okay, yeah. And Costa Rica Costa Rica, you know, they're nowhere as well. So that's pretty simple. Group D is England, Haiti, Denmark and China. Now, this pool pool D I thinks a bit of a banana skin. Okay. Uh China Was it China? Yes. You got England ranked 4th, China ranked 15th. Uh Denmark you know, Denmark are 18th, uh, ranked 18th as well. So I can s- certainly see one of those three... You know, I can certainly see it coming down to those three. Haiti's going to be nowhere. But I can certainly make a case for one of Denmark or England not getting through.
0: Which would be quite a boil over. I mean, England particularly, especially with the growing strength of the Women's Super League over in England. Like, if they don't make it through yeah. to the second like at least the quarter five, or the round of 16... They're going to be livid. Yeah, you know what would be great though, uh, just just a, a side by. You know, it'd yeah. be great if if at some point Australia and England play each other and Australia beats England again. That that would that, be great.
1: So Group E <laughs> has two-time defending champions the US, Vietnam. So that shouldn't be too difficult. But the other two teams, Netherlands and Portugal. The look, the US side's just that good in the women's game. They should get through there no problem. But Netherlands ranked 9, Portugal, first time in the tournament, ranked 21 in the world. Netherlands should get the second spot there.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we're We're going to Group F now. France, Brazil, Jamaica, Panama. I think that's pretty easily France and Brazil. Yeah. Group G is Sweden, South Africa, Italy, and Argentina.
0: That looks like a terrifying group. That is pretty nasty. Because cause Sweden are number two. In the, they're in the top five, aren't they? Yeah, Sweden are one of the teams that
1: would challenge USA for the title.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Italy made the quarterfinals in 2019. Argentina or Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But their women's side's not fantastic. And South Africa, well, they're even less fantastic. Okay. So that should see Sweden and Italy get through. In Group H... Germany, South Korea, Colombia, Morocco, Morocco. Germany, another team that should challenge for the title. Uh, South Korea, probably likely to make the second group there. Or make, take the second spot there.
0: Yeah. Okay, okay. With with that in mind, Chris, who do you reckon are going to be yeah. the top four teams in this in this competition? But yeah, US, Germany
1: probably probably France and just because it's being held in Australia I reckon the Matildas
0: may make the semis I, 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 if you didn't say Australia I was going to get mad at you Um, what, what about the yeah. likes of, of Sweden uh, do you think Sweden will get through because I, I know Sweden to be a very strong team
1: yeah so Sweden if they get through their pool else, if they get through their pool I made notes my phone just died <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah so Sweden, if they get through, they're going to be pool... What, are they... what pool did I say? We're doing? Uh,
0: they're in Group G with South Africa, Italy, and Argentina. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So they will... It's
1: hard, isn't it? I th- it, it, it is hard. I think it down to who they're going to play, to play in the quarters. Yep. Um, if they run into the likes of Australia, it might be difficult. But if they run into, say, a, an island, much easier.
0: Okay. Um... On on the note of the women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, obviously this has been something that Australia have been pushing and New Zealand have been pushing for for quite a long time to get a FIFA event down under. Um, with the increased popularity of women's sport, the the you know the popularity of the Matildas and the the growth of the women's game in Australia, couldn't be a better time for it, and that's been reflected in the ticket sales, hasn't it? It has been. Uh, we I had a bit of a play around
1: with the games in Melbourne. Um, to see what was available, and there wasn't a lot. Okay, they've released more tickets now, so they're doing the old drip feed, You know, trying to open up areas of the stadium as they need to. But you couldn't really get a ticket for any of the games in Melbourne. The games, the opening game for Australia and New Zealand are basically sold out. They've had to move the Australia Island game to Stadium Australia, which is pretty big, which is 80,000 seats. Yeah. Eden Park for New Zealand's first game is sold out. And the smaller games are being played, and especially New Zealand, are being played at like fifteen, sixteen thousand 16,000 seat stadiums. So they'll be close to full as well. And it's going to lead to a fantastic atmosphere and should lead to a great tournament. It's just a shame about some of the politics around it, but we won't get into that now.
0: Yeah, politics and sport is hard. <laughs> yes. Um. So the the tournament starts. Uh, as you said, uh, late July, July twentieth. I think you said, and runs through to I think mm-hmm. the the eighteenth of, of of August. So we'll we'll probably have an update halfway through the group stage of where everything's going and where everything sort of sits. Um. But it, I'm quite excited to actually get to watch some soccer in my time zone. That's of a good quality in <laughs> yeah. winter. Um. Yes. First game is actually going to be New Zealand Norway from Auckland. And then we
1: go to Australia Island from Sydney on the twentieth. So that's going to be a pretty cracking double hit at the start.
0: Yeah, straight away um, have the two host nations is always a good start. They bring it on, I say. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited for it. It'd be cool to have a a full scale FIFA event in the, on this side of the world. Um, because the the last FIFA event I can remember that happened in this time zone was like the two thousand and two World Cup, which was in Japan and Korea. Um, and I was, I was like eight. <laughs> so I don't remember watching um, this,
1: this is the first time a World Cup's been held across confederations as well, which is kind of cool. So what do you mean across confederations?
0: So, AFC
1: and OFC, Oceania and Asia.
0: Yeah, so because Australia is technically not in Oceania, except for the fact that it's physically in Oceania, but it just qualifies through a- Asia, Asia because... Yeah. Because because we, we 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 stopped we didn't want to get beaten by Uruguay okay <laughs> that stopped you didn't being want fun get
1: beaten by Uruguay and you, got,
0: and you got sick of beating the Solomon Islands seventy five 0 oh that too yeah uh, got one of those days thank God um, we actually get to play some uh, you know we get to play a bit more consistent in terms of the quality of teams that we're playing and all that sort of stuff. Um... I think it's wonderful that uh, women's uh, women's sport is getting so well supported. And, uh, you know, the women's Ashes as well, they were playing in front of like 20,000 people each day of the Test match, which is wonderful. We're going to see great crowds at the Women's World Cup. I, I'm, I'm quite enjoying the fact that we're seeing such a big spike in women's sport. Me too. It's fantastic to see. Um, equal opportunity for all.
1: It's great knowing that my daughter has a wider choice of stuff she can play when she gets older.
0: Oh, that's so gorgeous um who's gonna win you'd be foolish to back against the us Ah, that's so lame though i know
1: Uh, that's a good point Um, i could be patriotic to new zealand but that's not gonna happen
0: (laughs) does new zealand get out of the group do you reckon oh yeah i I think they do does new zealand make it to the semis no okay round of 16 as far as i see them going okay um so yeah, we'll keep you updated on that. Um, we'll see, yeah, we've got the first round of group games around the 20th, and I think, will we have one group game com- completed or two group games completed before we do our next episode? Possibly two. Okay, um, so fingers crossed for that, and we'll hopefully have 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 some good soccer to watch, I hope. Or good football, rather. It depends how late we
1: record, because some group D, for example, finishes on the 1st of August.
0: Gosh, okay, yeah. So it'll be, it'll be tight.
1: Yeah. And um, if you want to go along to China, England High March Stadium, you can
0: do that. That's, that's assuming that we are on time. And Chris, when have we ever been on time? What's the clock? <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. It's getting late and we've still got more to talk about. Uh, what's next on our agenda? It's the, it's the Tour de France. It's the, the, the biggest single uh, annual event, right? Gosh, this is going off the rails very quickly. I am excited for Tour de France and it's already started. Yes, stage four Captain writers will record this.
1: have uh, so been allegedly roll into wherever they're going. <laughs> but yeah, first three stages, from all accounts, because I haven't set up to watch too much of it so far, have been quite entertaining. It, it quite it's has been. from the past Country.
0: Yeah. And, and like, as, as a commentator said, there's two flags that exist everywhere you go cycling. And that is the flag of Flanders, the Lion of Flanders, and the the red and white and green flag of the Basque Country. And let me tell you, the, the fans were out in force. And like, I mean, like five, six, seven deep Across the whole course in the two stages in the Basque Country, quite incredible. Um, quickly, just before we we start, I want to explain why do we care about the Tour de France? Well, if you've listened to our show for you know any period of time, you know that we like sports that go for a long period of time. I mean, we're fans of endurance motorsports for God's sake. Also, we spend far too long talking about Test cricket, and the Tour de France is just another sort of extension of that. It's to me, it's all about the stories in the stories, in the stories, in the stories that make up the bigger picture. It's about having the the different competitions, the different little battles that make up all of these bigger pictures. Um, so, for example, we've already seen uh, a story in the King of the Mountains jersey, wherein one rider is uh basically trying to get as many points as he can so he can wear that jersey for as long as possible and he's now been in the breakaway three days in a row just trying to get points for the King of the Mountains. And like it's a little funny because every single claim he's like bustling, hustling all the way up, takes the points at the top and then just like completely backs off, um, which is, you know, exactly what you do when you're trying to to hold on to a jersey, literally just to get more screen time for the sponsors. Like that's why he's doing it. Um, and just a bit of yeah, notoriety. It's not going to the- be in contention when we hit the Cat 2 ones HCs. No, not, a- not at all. Um as a bit of a preview, Chris, I thought I'd tell you about a few stages that I, I'd like to point out. Uh, a few stages that are going to be exciting throughout the race. Because there's like there's like three types of stages in the Tour de France, I think. So the, the first type of stage, which is the type of stage that we've got today, um, which is what's called a sprinter stage. So it's going to be... It's very flat. It's very long. And what we're expecting when we say it's a sprinter stage is that at the end of the day, we expect that the peloton will arrive at the finish in a bunch. And it will be one for the sprinters to win out of the bunch. So we had one of those yesterday, and it was won by Mats Pedersen um, from the Dacunha Alpecin team, um, which was not a surprise to anyone because he's probably the best sprinter going around at the moment. Um, but that's kind of the first type of stage. Um, the second type of stage is one I'd call for for the ponchures. One of the one of the stages where you get a little bit of a little bit of hills. It's likely that there will be a breakaway that forms and that goes away at the front and the team, the, the leaders, aren't really going to care too much, and it's going to be one for the breakaway, and, and one for those who can really sort of punch and attack out of the breakaway. So those, those are the more the hilly sort of stages. So I reckon um, stage 17... Oh, no, sorry, the last stage, stage 20, the last competition stage, is going to be one of those stages. Because stage 20 on the... Uh, what day is it going to be? Um, the, the 22nd has f- six climbs finishing with a summit finish um, uh, at 130 kilometers for... And that's going to be after two weeks of three weeks of racing. So I reckon that one's going to be one of those stages. But the stages for me that I always like watching are the high mountain stages. Now, these are the ones where you have a lot of climbing that, and they go for a long time. And this is the one, the sort of stages where the Tour de France gets decided. And the two that I really want to point out is stage 13, uh, on the fourteenth of uh, of July, Bastille Day in France, um, which is a stage that goes up the uh, Grand Columbia, uh which is one of the one of the big climbs in the Tour de France. Um, so that is a seventeen kilometer climb, climb at seven percent. So that's the first real big mountain of the tour. Um, and then the stage seventeen uh, uh, from Mont Blanc to Courchevel goes up f- four climbs, uh, including. Uh, the uh, the Colme de Roseland, which is nineteen kilometers, twenty kilometers at six percent. Uh, Côte de Longfort, which is six kilometers at seven percent, and then finishing up with the Col de la Lozere, uh, I think it is, uh, which is twenty eight kilometers at six percent, which is the highest point in the tour. And after one hundred and seventy k's of racing, that is going to be, I think, where the Tour de France is going to be won and lost. Uh, so that's. Yeah. That's going to be the one that I'm going to keep an eye on, and that's the the 19th of of, uh, July. So, yeah, stage 17, mark that one in your books. 28 kilometers of climbing just sounds insane, doesn't it? Dude, 28 (laughs) kilometers of riding sounds insane to me. (laughs) Uh, Despite being someone who's watched the Tour de France for almost 20 years, I'm not much of a
1: bike rider. Yeah, I guess the good thing about that stage, it comes after a rest day and a time trial, so it's not the worst lead into that Absolute monster.
0: Well, the thing is, the time trials aren't rest days for the general classification riders. So the riders, riders who want to win overall, they still need to be on for the time trial. Sure, it's a rest for the rest of the team, um, who can sort of take it a little bit easy. But the for the riders who have serious ambitions of winning, they need to give it all for the the twenty uh, the, the the time trial, and then they need to back it up the next day with four big mountains to co- to go across. Like, I'm not really sure that that's. I, I reckon one of the big names are gonna gonna break on that on that day most likely i also like stage
1: 15 as well it's a bit of a brute you got a cat one into a, it's 170ks 180ks you got a cat one into a cat one into a three two and a cat one finish
0: <laughs> yeah th- those sort of days are the ones that really really hurt the legs when you're going up and down and up and down and up and down you don't really get much for break um. Yeah. Uh, 180k's on that day as well. That's a that's a big day. And something that I found I found interesting, Chris, is that this year's tour doesn't really have. A lot of the traditional high mountains that we've been used to seeing in past tours. So normally the tour route goes through the Alps and the Pyrenees, and you see they, uh, you know mountains like Alpe d'Huez or uh, the Col de Galambier or the uh, the Col de Tourmalet. None of those are in this edition of the tour. They really are you know trying something different by giving a lot more of these smaller, punchier sort of climbs. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not that's uh, by design to try and change the front of the race or if that's just something new that they're trying that they just want to see how it works but it's it's not something that we've really seen a lot i don't mind it i mean there is a bit of a history of them trying to mix
1: it up a bit um i'm really interested to see how they go because this race is going to undergo a lot of changes in the near future Particularly with its finishing, because if they won't be able to ride around the Champs Elysees, that's going to be a massive turning point for them.
0: Yeah, I am kind of sad about that. I I've always had a dream of going to France to Paris to see the the you know finale of the Tour de France on the Champs Elysees. So big big sad on that one. Um, yeah,
1: but um, but Christophe Prudhomme's you know really trying to try to do a few things for this stage of for this year.
0: Yeah, it's been interesting. It's interesting. It's interesting to see the sort of things that the organisers are trying to do, and whether or not that has a positive effect or a, neg- or a negative effect. Um, on that note, though, I should talk about who the the guys to watch are. Um, for Australians, I reckon uh, you know we've we've got a few overall hopes in the in the eyes of uh, Jai Hindley, Jack Hagen, Ben O'Connor. I don't think any of them are serious chances at winning overall, um, but they, they might be in the top five, the top 10, which is still a great result at the Tour de France. Um, a lot of the Australian attention is going to be on Caleb Ewan, uh, the sprinter, um, who finished a third in the stage yesterday. Um, so he's a chance for, for winning a few stages. Um, so keep an eye on him. Um, but I think overall, it's going to be another battle between uh, Tade Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard. And I reckon, based on form this year, it's got to be the Pog, man. It's good. He's he's what? I think he's raced sixteen races and won eleven of them so far this season, which is yeah ludicrous. And also in his camp, he's you know with three stages and he's already picked up sixteen bonus seconds. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? So it's it's. It's not so much the fact that he's gone out and taken these bonus seconds, but he's just it's the fact that he's had the ability to jump out of the pack and grab them. That's that's the yeah. thing that's been striking yeah. to me. So it's it's he's already looking and it was the same when Cadell Evans won his Tour de France. Early on, he looked like he was the business, and it hasn't looked like Vindegar is the business just yet. Vindegar's probably got a stronger team in jumbo Visma, you know, with the likes of Wout Van Aert and, you know, the powerhouses in that team to really drive it along. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the strength of the rider that matters, and I reckon Pogacar's just a bit better at the moment. I'd go with that, and he's won the last two tours for a reason. Yeah. Oh, well, Vingo won last year, so... Yeah, true. Yeah. Um. But, Chris, I love watching the Tour de France. It's something I look forward to each year. Do you get into the tour all that much?
1: Oh, yeah. Before I had a kid, and then we had... You know, absolutely was getting into it. So I remember one year when SBS had their um, live chat on their tour tracker. That was great fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was brilliant. Uh, What is it about watching the tour that you enjoy so much? Firstly, it's the
1: whole, why are they doing this to themselves? (laughs) Yeah. But the scenery, the way it's presented, just the beauty of it. Like I'm just I'm looking at pictures right now from today's stage, and there's not a lot going on in the Palatine net at the moment. But you're driving through some beautiful countryside, and it's just great viewing. And then when you get to the mountains, and you see the fans behaving like absolute lunatics.
0: Yeah, it's and it's some shirtless guy just <laughs> I just saw there. The devil every year. Yeah, the devil every year. I was about to say that. And it's it's I, I love I love the as you said the way it's presented. It's like watching a uh, like watching almost a nature documentary, except it's guys on bikes. But something yep. that I something that I love is that it's like, as I said, it's like watching Test match cricket. It might not look like there's a much there's much happening, but oftentimes. There's plenty happening. you just got to kind of find it. Like right now, mm. just as we've started talking, there's been a change in direction of the the way the race is heading. And that's meant that like three or four riders have attacked right at the front immediately because they've gone through a period of crosswinds. And it's strung out the peloton yeah. in this really big long line. And like, it's just been like that. It's gone from nothing to all of a sudden very high intensity. And, you know, all of these little stories we- add up. We've ever met Ken, and it looks like we're doing live commentary now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but like, um, already there's but what's been cool, still... this year, what's cool? This... Go ahead. I was say what's cool this year is you're getting team commentary as well. Team, team radio. Yeah, for the first time. That's something that we've been kind of used to when watching motorsport, but it's really interesting hearing how they do it in cycling as well. Because while cycling is scored as an individual sport, it's definitely a team sport. Oh yeah. Yeah, like. You know, as similar to the fact that, like, it's the one driver that gets all the plaudits for you know the entire team and engineering doing all their jobs. It's like the one rider that crosses the line first that gets all the plaudits, but really, it's all the other riders and the domestiques and the the people in the team cut making the decisions that make it all happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. Uh, and as well, it's just, it's just, it's just good fun. It's nice to have something to watch every single night in the middle of goddamn winter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: It's especially when they have the thirty-five degrees days, and you get a little jealous.
0: Ah, oh, a little. Okay, okay. Um, we should probably clean it there. Uh, Tour de France goes for three weeks, so it'll be over by the time uh, we come to our next episode. We'll probably talk about our favourite highlights and all that sort of stuff next episode. Um, Chris, we've been talking for almost two hours. I know that there's plenty more we could talk about. Briefly mention a few things that are happening. Okay, so
1: Wimbledon's going on. Just started today. Uh. Speaking of people wearing white and traditional stuff, the most traditional tennis tournament there is. Um, first day was pretty heavily rain affected. Usual suspects should probably do well there. Kyrgios is out. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, yeah. What else is happening? Rugby union's coming up soon. We're into the Rugby Championship and Blizzle Cup. The most one-sided rovery in all of sport.
0: Uh, that hurts. You know why it's so one-hearted, yeah, it's a... or one-side, or one-sided? One-sided? Even... Uh, because because. I mean, because New Zealand a good, sure. But Eden Park is a bloody hard place to go play rugby.
1: Yes, it is. Especially in a two-match series where you have to win both games. Good luck.
0: Ah, oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. There's a reason,
1: there's a reason New Zealand's going for 22-0. and 22-0. <laughs> and
0: 0. That's so sad. And, like, in that time as well, Australia has almost won a Rugby World Cup and we still can't beat New Zealand within New Zealand.
1: Uh, rugby world cup coming up this year of course so it's a bit shortened this championship but we'll do a preview on that later
0: and then we've got other yeah go other ahead happening um there F- you go fih pro, uh, hockey pro league is on at the moment uh european tour uh in i think they just finished up the belgian league so it's been great actually watching some hockey um uh as opposed to playing some hockey but that's been fun um good to watch and I think for the moment that's it. But that's just so much, like between the cricket, the Tour de France, and the motorsport, and the motorsport, and the motorsport, and the motorsport, and the Wimbledon, the motorsport. It's just there's just something something on at all times, and it is just a wonderful time to be a sports fan, but an awful time if you like sleep.
1: Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what sleeps over, right? I've sleep. got a kid. I don't get any sleep anyway.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Um, before we wrap up, Chris. How was your trip to uh, Estonia, and how was playing soccer at Saint Mary's? Well, apart from the fact I'm useless and slow,
1: <laughs> I mean, I could have told you that. I, got, I told it. I got told the one good thing I did during the games was a throw-in. Nice. <laughs> but um, no, the whole experience was wild. Watching the Southampton versus Liverpool game was actually a cracking game too. Yeah. Um. Gave me an insight. Like, there was a seven-year-old, or like a seven, eight-year-old who was in the box with us who was a mad Liverpool supporter and he was swearing at the players harder than some Australians do.
0: <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. That, that's that's the magic of sport right there. Yeah, but no, he's, he was actually a good
1: chap. Um, but no, absolutely wild experience and then step on the field the following day, day. You know, I always wanted to play sport in a stadium. And now you have. No, I have. Wild experience. You you had an experience of a sport recently as well, didn't you?
0: Oh, yeah. I went to the hockey (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was it was actually a really, really good game, but I only figured that out after I like after I'd already left because really I just spent the entire time sitting on the hill talking shit with my teammates. Um, we went as a we went as a, a big group of us who were playing in the same hockey club together. So it's the first time I'd ever been to a an international hockey game and it was really really good. It was a really really good game. Um, some great work on the penalty corners from both uh, uh Australia and India because it was Australia the hockey ruse versus India. Um and Really enjoyed. Really enjoyed watching it. Really enjoyed the experience. But yeah, only watched like ten minutes of actual hockey and just spent the rest of the time shit talking. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> but I mean, like that's uh, what you—that's what you do when you're watching live sport up on the hill. That's like that's what happens, right? What well, we did in the VIP box. Yeah, exactly. We just we like we just
1: shit talking Saint beers.
0: <laughs> like the like the prophets foretold. Um, on that note. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to this rambling mess. Um, as you can tell, we are very passionate about sports and we are very out of practice. It doesn't take long to get out of practice. Um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for continuing to listen to endurance chat over the course of the year. It means a lot to us. Thank you very much, Chris.
1: Thanks,
0: Michael. And we'll see you next month uh, for more from the grandstand. In the meantime, we should have a endurance chat preview up for Monza and a wrap up the 24 hours of the more. Uh, Keep, stay tuned for that, and yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Peace out!